our, I, I don't know if you'll, you, you'll be happy to hear this or you'll be sad to hear this, but our, our time in Psalms is coming to a close. We have not finished Psalms. We, that was never our intent to preach through all 150 of them, but we started in February, if you can believe it or not. So we've covered quite a few. More than I anticipated, but probably the first Sunday in December will be our wrap-up Sunday for the book of Psalms. Today we are in Psalm 33. You can be turning there. If you're keeping track, next week we'll be in a Psalm of Thanksgiving, appropriate for this time of year, and it'll be Psalm 118 that we'll be in next Sunday. So Psalm 33 is today. Last week we looked at Psalm 32 and what God threw David had to say about confession and forgiveness. David shared with us in that text what happened when he tried to hide his sin. And if you remember, you can glance, since you're only in 33, you can kind of glance back at 32. It wasn't pretty what happened to David. He felt as if God's hand was heavy upon him, he said. And it resulted in him feeling like his bones were wasting away inside of him, like his life was especially dry. And we made that correlation to how we feel that way sometimes. And how often is that connected with unconfessed sin in our lives? And so David gave us some pretty good advice. And he took some specific actions in regards to the sin that he was trying at one point to hide from God. He acknowledged it. He uncovered it. And then he confessed it to the Lord. These ought to be the steps that we take as well. And so we said that if the truth about our sin should drive us to confession, and it should, then the truth about God's forgiveness should drive us to joy. In Christ, everything has been forgiven. And that should create joy in the life of believer. In 32, this phrase was mentioned, Psalm 32, it's steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And if that's true, and it is, then we have confidence that God is faithful to forgive when we humbly confess our sins and trust Him to deal with them. Not hide them, not try to fix it ourselves. Confess, repent, and let Him deal with it. And so, both confession and forgiveness are blessings from God that I think David and the psalmist today in 33 are saying produce joy in the life of believers. And that concept leads us to our text today. Now let me point out some similarity between the end of 32 and the beginning of 33 before we read the full text. Look at the last verse of Psalm 32. It says, Shout for joy, you upright in heart. The beginning, the first verse of Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. So we don't know for certain that Psalm 33 was written immediately following Psalm 32. In fact, we're not all so confident that David is even the author here of Psalm 33. But obviously, it was the wisdom of the Lord to put Psalm 33 right after Psalm 32. And I think that there's a good reason for it. I hope you'll see that before we're done today. Let's read Psalm 33. And then we'll pray. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harps of, harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. 
He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. And his plans of, and the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Father, May our hope be grounded not in what we see around us, even in our own strength and ability. May we hope in you and in you alone. And may we do that more as a result of your word and hearing it today. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen. So we see regularly in the Psalms some things, specifically that the praise of the Lord is often accompanied by what? Musical instruments, right? Musical instruments, loud singing. Uh, the author here mentions the lyre, the harp, stringed instruments, and he, he mentions loud shouts. The people are commanded then to also sing a new song to the Lord. Now, I think what David is saying is not that every Sunday or any time we gather, we need a brand new song to learn. I don't think that that's what he's getting at here. I think he means that people shouldn't become lax and lulled into just doing and saying and singing the same things when we get together and when we come before the Lord. Because as humans, we tend to be hypocritical and be pharisaical about things. And so it's very easy for us to come and sing a familiar song without connecting the lyrics to our heart. And our walk with the Lord. And David's saying, don't do that. Or the author here is saying, don't do that. Don't get stuck. Don't get stale or ritualistic in your worship time. Instead, sing a new song to the Lord. Full of joy, full of hope, full of newness. I think there's a bit of instruction for uh, worship team members here too. As a guitar player, this it sticks out to me. He says in verse 3, He says, play skillfully on the strings. Literally, this means to do well in playing music. So again, I don't think David is saying that um, you should sing a new song when you come to church every week. He's also not saying that only those who can play professionally without any errors should play. But I think that he is saying that if you're going to play, 
specifically to the Lord, specifically in worship, do it to the best of your ability. Do it with everything that you can. Whatever your skill level is currently at, work hard to play skillfully. I'm thankful for you guys playing that way this morning and leading us in worship. So if you're learning an instrument, no matter what level you're at, keep practicing. Keep attempting to increase your skill so that you can play that way to the Lord skillfully. After all, he's the one that we play to and for, right? Our worship team, when they stand up here and they're facing you and they play their, the songs and they lead you in music, they're not playing for you. I hope you understand that. They're not performing for you. They're leading us to the audience of the Lord. He's the one who listens. And so we pray, play, and we sing for Him. And we do it to the best that we can. So, whether you're playing an instrument or singing, and I know some of you say, well, I don't like to sing real loud because I don't have the best voice. Forget it. That doesn't mean anything. God doesn't worry about that. He doesn't hold our mess-ups against us. As children of the King, though, we desire to play more and more skillfully in His presence for Him. And really, I think we could take this analogy and move it beyond just the musical aspect, because not everybody plays a musical instrument or is musical in nature. So maybe each one of us should play skillfully in whatever area that God has given us talent in. Maybe that's in teaching. Maybe you can communicate in a fantastic way, and you do that to the best of your ability. Maybe maybe it's accounting. Maybe you're good with numbers. You do that as unto the Lord, to the best of your ability. You want to do things accurately and precisely to honor God in how you work. And maybe that's in farming. Maybe it's in auto repair. Maybe it's in being a cook or a caregiver or a mom or a dad or whatever that skill that God has given you, are you doing that skillfully? Are you increasing that skill? I'm reminded of several verses that help us understand this. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord, Colossians 3.17 says. Paul goes on in that chapter in verse 23 and 24 to say, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So no matter if you're playing a musical instrument or you're plowing a field or you're teaching kids or whatever the case might be, you do it for God and not for man. And so work as if that's true because it is. Now, looking on in chapter 33, verses 4 and 5, the psalmist here goes to give us reasons why God is to be praised. And he pushes, I think, one reason to the forefront. It's this, the word of the Lord is right. What God says is true. It's straight. It's upright, maybe your version says. All the time, that's how it is. Not just in a certain season, not just when you're a certain age. All the t- God's word never changes. And so he says the word of the Lord is right. Now, if you remember, back when Jason led us in a a discussion on Psalm 119. Many of us kind of shared reasons why God, um, God's word is important. What was listed there in Psalm 119, he said, how precious are your words to me, O Lord. And he equated them with honey. Remember that? 
He equated them with rules or statutes or commands, and he said that they were all to him the words of life. That's important. There's things that we need to live. And David is saying, was saying in Psalm 119, I need his word just to live, just to take another breath. I need it. His words are true. So all of God's working with his created things, with people and his creation, all of his dealings with them have truth and justice and faithfulness as their basis. All of those things have God's faithfulness and truth and justice as their basis. And so the author here can say the earth is full of the steadfast love of God. Because God can be thoroughly trusted. If the earth is full of it, that's, that's a very common thing that we see or can be seen. We don't often see that, unfortunately. But it's there everywhere around us, the author here is saying. It's full of the love of God, the mercy of God. That's something that we can trust. And it's another grounds for praise for the author here. So God is to be praised not only for his goodness, but also for his greatness. And I think verses 6 and 7 demonstrate this. If you look at those, by the word of the Lord, what was made? The heavens, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Now, we see the power of God in these verses, starting with the most obvious thing, creation. Right, The, the words the psalmist uses, I feel like, are very, very descriptive, almost grandiose. He says, by the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made. Now, if you know anything about biblical history from Genesis, you know that that's how God created. He spoke, and it was. By Here the psalmist says, by his by the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made. And then he says a, a few more interesting analogies. He says, he gathers the waters as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Now, obviously, these are very poetic phrases, okay? Have you guys ever tried to, to hold a handful of water? Kids, have you ever been in the pool or in the tub and you try to grab the water? What happens to it? It's right. It just falls right out. You can't, we can't grab big heaps of water, but who can? God can. God's not limited like that, like we are. And so these descriptions are poetic, but they help us see God's uh, power over creation. So I don't know about you, but it made me kind of think back to a couple of the miracles of where water was gathered up in a heap. You remember Israelites running from the Egyptians? They come to the Red Sea. You know the story. It's parted, and they walk across on dry land. That's heaps of water on both sides. There's also a story in Joshua 3 where the Jordan River is split in two when the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant through, and they carry it through on water on both sides. And so God has the obvious ability to do this. And the psalmist captures this idea, and he, then he talks about storing up huge amounts of water in the earth, and this illustrates his, his wisdom and his, and his power. And he does this to be employed at whatever time he needs. And if you remember the story of the flood, all of that was released. The water from in the earth, under the earth, and above the earth, it all just came down to cover the earth. 
So verse 4 and 5 have already taught us that everything the Lord does is right and good, right? His, his loving kindness, His mercy extends it's all over creation. It's everywhere. And then these verses help us understand that this all comes from a place of sovereign justice and love. This storing up great waters, these weren't designed for his people to harm them, were they? When you think about those two instances I just used, that was their deliverance. God delivered them through the water being heaped up on either side. Now, for the enemies of the Lord, they were the, it was their destruction, specifically with the Egyptians. But God uses these things for good for those whom he loves. And so, even though it sometimes seems strange to us, God's ways are always right. And that's really easy for me to stand up and say and for you to shake your head and be like, yeah, that's true, pastor. But then when life happens and it doesn't make sense, do we really still believe this? When we lose a loved one that we don't, we feel like we shouldn't have lost that early or that way, do we really believe that God's ways are always right? That's when it becomes difficult. But this holds true. Look at verse 1 again, and I want to compare verse 1 with verse 8. Verse 1 is addressed to the righteous, right? The psalmist urges the righteous person to praise the Lord, and he tells him how to do that and why. Verse 8 is addressed differently. It's addressed, addressed to all of mankind, every person here. And they're urged to do what? Not praise the Lord at this point. They're urged to fear the Lord. It says, fear the Lord. And then uh, verses 9, 10, and 11, these assign reasons to why God should be feared. Look at verse 9. Because of his power in creation. Verse 10. Because of his wisdom over all mankind. And then verse 11. Because of his unchanging and eternal purpose. That's why God is to be feared. It's interesting though. And at least a little bit funny to me um, to notice the same specific word that the psalmist uses in verse 10 and 11, but he uses them a little different. So look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel, that's the word, the counsel of the nations to nothing. Now look in verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Do you see the, the variance here, the difference between how he uses the word counsel, another word, plan, purpose, the counsel plan, purpose of the nations, the inhabitants of the world, it's brought to nothing. He frustrates, that's what the ESV says, he frustrates the plans of the peoples. Is that a good description of our country right now? He frustrates the plans of the peoples. It's neutralized. It's made of no effect, he says. But in verse 11, the word is used in a very different way to illustrate how his counsel or how his plan or purpose stands forever. It's not moved. It's fixed. It's steady. It's stable. The wisdom of God can bring the plans of mankind to a screeching halt. But nothing thwarts his plan. Nothing. Not your disobedience or sin even. Nothing thwarts God's plans. My family and I, 
we subscribe to an online news source called World Watch News. I would highly encourage you guys to check it out. It is specifically aimed at kids. Every weekday, they have about 10 minutes of current events with a biblical foundation. And it's geared at kids. And we've talked about the missionaries in Haiti to cryptocurrency to um, the world's biggest potato uh, to all kinds of different things. Uh, you can, I think, go online and get a free 30-day trial if you like. But um, they have this saying that the, the main news guy says at the very end. And he says this. And kids, this is that phrase I want you to listen for and be able to repeat back to me. They end the news program every day with this phrase. Whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. You don't hear that on CBS News when they sign off, do you? MSNBC, Fox News even. You don't hear that kind of phrasing. So I I genuinely appreciate when they say, whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. What a helpful thought to end a newscast with, right? Check it out. It, It actually sounds pretty biblical. Another wise man once said in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. No matter what you see going on around you, you can be sure that God's purpose will stand. It will endure. And so that's how Christians navigate a world like we live in with hope. And might I dare even suggest with joy. Because no matter what we see, The purpose of the Lord will stand, and it will stand forever. Look at verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. That that doesn't mean just until you die. It doesn't mean until your grandchildren are no more. Forever. From before the beginning until long after our end. The purpose of the Lord stands forever. And look at verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You've heard that a lot, I would, I would hope. Hasn't our nation, hasn't America been around long enough to see how true this is? Right? Many of us would contend, probably with accuracy, that we are an extremely blessed nation, maybe more so than any other nation before. Materially and that sort of thing. Freedom-wise, And we can certainly point to some of those things that are leaving us at the moment. But even still, God has shown us that we can be blessed when our God is the Lord. Follow the Lord. Build your society around biblical principles. See what blessings come. But if you go your own way and remove God as the Lord, what kind of troubles lie in wait? For a nation. It really doesn't seem that complicated, does it? When a society believes that God doesn't exist and should be ignored or replaced, they'll do anything, anything to write him out of the equation, remove him from their minds. There is a 100% certainty in what verse 12 says, though. Blessed is the nation, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
But the converse then, I think we would agree, is also true. The nation whose God isn't the Lord is not blessed. Now, in large part, I've been referring to the country that we live in because we see this playing out right before our eyes today. And I believe that we've seen God's blessing on America as a country. And we praise God for our roots and where we have come from. But I also believe that what we're seeing today is a result of a nation who has abandoned God as their Lord. The solution isn't complicated either, but it is sometimes difficult. It might even be impossible if God is applying Romans 1 to us at the moment, giving us over to our debased minds and our fleshly lusts. But all hope is not lost. God assures us that he has not and will not abandon his people. His plans are not thwarted. They will continue to stand. So let me quote it one more time because we need to hear it. Whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Now, as much as it applies to America in 2021, the second half of verse 12 of Psalm 33 really points to the nation that this is referring to. It says, the people or nation who God has chosen as his heritage. So who are his chosen people? Israel. His chosen ones, his called out ones. And through the full testimony of the word of God, we know that when biblical authors use this kind of phrase, chosen people, heritage, they're not necessarily referring to the physical bloodline of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And I would argue that that's how it is here too. Paul makes this really clear in Galatians chapter 3, that this is referring to every person who is called by God and who responds by faith and receives the gift of salvation. You don't have to have Jewish blood running through your veins to be a part of God's heritage, his chosen people. These are the people whom God has chosen And they will be eternally blessed. And so Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's not just the bloodline of Israel. It's every person that has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so then the psalmist in verses 13 through 21, he turns back and he gives more reasons for praising the Lord. Look at verse 13. He says that the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. Now this, this phrase always makes me chuckle now because a couple years ago, as Jason was teaching the Awana kids, he was talking about the Tower of Babel. I think I've shared this maybe before. And he was, they were getting it up as high as they could go and they were trying to be self-sufficient and basically right after the flood say, well, you know, we're going to build this thing. So if If you flood us again, we'll be safe. But then when it talks about God observing what's happening, it says he comes down to see. So the tallest thing that mankind could build, God still has to come down to look at because he's so much higher above. And so it says here, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. Psalm So this is what it says. He looks down because he sits in a place of honor and complete control over mankind. From where he sits, he sees everything everybody does. After all, the verse says, he fashioned them. He made them. But we fight against this truth, don't we? And this kind of lies at part of our problem as a nation. We fight against this. We don't want to believe 
that God sees everything we do. Because number one, we'd be awfully ashamed. And number two, if God knew everything and sees everything, even our sinful thoughts, attitudes, actions, behavior, then guess what? We're going to be accountable for those things. If God sees it and he says, this is a category of wrong, now we're accountable for it. And we don't like that. So if we push him out and we ignore him, then we can rewrite maybe even history to exclude him. To make it easier for us today. We fight hard to believe that we don't need him. That we don't need saving. And if we do need saving, we can save ourselves. We can do it. We've got this, God. We don't need you. In fact, we don't even believe that you exist. The psalmist really addresses this kind of idea in the next couple of verses, 16 and 17. He says, The king is not saved by a great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Yeah, 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 I get it. Horses can't save me. All right, I'm good, Rob. I understand. That can be our attitude when we see stuff like this. A great army, a warrior's strength, the fastest, strongest horse It cannot save anyone from the judgment of the Lord who looks down and observes all the deeds of man. But let's put it in today's terms. We're we're not trusting in horses, but maybe, maybe we're trusting in our military. We have the biggest military force. Maybe we have the most durable and athletic physical routine, and we are in the best shape. Maybe we have the most advanced technology. None of that saves us from the judgment of God. None of it does. He observes, he sees, and his plans are never thwarted or diverted in the least bit because of any of these things. Any of these things we try to hope in. No, none of that stuff saves us, the psalmist here says. That's, it's foolishness to think that those sorts of things save us. Look at verse 18. He says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. And on those who hope in his steadfast love. Now we've already established that his sight is over every person on the earth. But this verse says that his eye is especially fixed on one group in particular. The righteous. Now this isn't... Last week we looked at uh, Psalm 32 and David talked about the hand of the Lord and the eye of the Lord being heavy upon him. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. That in verse in chapter 32 was designed to draw children back to the loving care of the Father, back into fellowship, that heavy hand of the Lord. This is an eye of protection, of deliverance, of safety. Look at verse 19, that he may deliver them, their soul from death, keep them alive in famine. So God notes how all men act, but he carefully watches over the safety and success of his faithful ones, of his people. For those who hope in his steadfast love, God will rescue them from ruin and he will nourish them in time of need. This, we're not so much in danger of a, of a famine, hopefully. But we need to be nourished still. Jesus himself said we don't live on 
bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we need to be nourished, not just physically, but probably more importantly, spiritually. And God says he'll do that. He may deliver them, keep them alive in famine. That's where the eye of the Lord is on, on those who fear him for the purpose of rescue of redemption, of safety, nourishment, salvation. And verse 20 continues this. It says, He is our help and our shield. Our soul waits for Him. So confident in God's good and gracious will in our lives and His power to help us, His people wait patiently and cheerfully, verse 21 says, for Him to come through in His way and in His time all the while hoping in His holy name. Who likes to wait? You don't even have to raise your hand. You don't even have to. My three-year-old is raising his hand, and I know that's a lie. I can confirm that. Yeah, we, we don't like to wait. But you can't get away from this. Even as we wait and hope in the Lord, we trust in no one and in nothing else. Nothing but Him. Not in, not in our military, not in horses, not in armies, not in our own strength. None of that stuff. Not in our own good physical activity and our own ability. No. God alone is our dependence. And not dependent like on your taxes, like He relies on you. We rely on Him. We depend on Him. And verse 22, I think, is a very fitting end to this psalm. It cries out for the Lord to continue pouring His kindness, protection, and favor upon His people. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That's what the English Standard Version says. I want to read it from the King James Version. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. I think the King James actually captures something here that I want to point out as we close today. The author is asking that God's mercy be given out according to the hope that they have in him. Think about that for a second. Ask yourself this question. If, this is a big if, if God's mercy and love was only given to you according to how much you trust Him, how much mercy and love would you have? Some further questions for reflection. Is your heart glad in Him? Are you content in what the Lord has done in your life for you? Or are you discontent, constantly looking for something else to satisfy you? Does your soul wait on the Lord? Or are, are you impatient? And in your impatience, do you presume upon the will of God and act foolishly? Do you trust in your own wisdom, experience, strength, or willpower to save you? Or are you genuinely trusting in the eternally wise counsel of the Lord? Because you can't do both. The reality is that if we are not trusting in the Lord, if we're not hoping in Him, as verse 22 says, then we will look for any number of other things to rescue and satisfy our souls. 
if it's not God, we'll fill that with something. And all you got to do is turn the TV on and see what people normally fill it with. If our gaze is on any of those other things, even when the love of God is displayed, we aren't looking in the right direction. And so sometimes we miss it. We don't see it. And then we think that maybe he's forgotten us or he's unfaithful. And the reality is we just haven't been looking in the right place. We haven't been clinging to the right things. We haven't been hoping in the right stuff, in the right person. He says, according as we hope in thee, or even as we hope in you. These phrases can also be translated, in order that we hope in you, or so that we hope in you. And I really think that's the best rendering of it. The psalmist is praying that God would pour out his love and mercy so that he might trust him more. So that he could trust him more. Made me think of that old hymn that we sing sometimes, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Part of that chorus goes, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Also made me think of the boy, the boy's father, who the boy was possessed by a demon, and the father comes to Jesus in dire need. The disciples have been trying to cast this demon out, and it wasn't working. And the father is desperate and he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, for grace to trust him more. The truth is, it's a good thing that God's love isn't only given in the proportion that our hope is set in him. Because our hope is often discouraged. Our hope is often easily distracted. And our hope is very often prone to despair, isn't it? Paul helps us in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In Romans 5, 6, he helps us again. For while we were still weak, without strength, and that means without strength to believe, without strength to do right and be good on our own, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 of Romans 5, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is continually given to help our unbelief to bolster our faith, and to increase our hope. Is that true of you today? Is your faith increasing because of what God is doing in your life and in the world through his word? Do you feel like maybe you lack faith today? Maybe like that dad in desperate need. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you need God to help you in that? Psalm 33 says he will help you in that. He will do it. And when he does, how are you going to respond? Back to verse 1, 2, and 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That's what God's people do 
when they find their hope rested in him. May our salvation and the joy of it cause us to respond to this way still today. If you've not experienced the love of God personally, you can. It's, it's not something that you just add to what you're already doing in life. It's something that replaces your life. Jesus says, leave it and come after me. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And so we don't want to give you a false idea of what salvation is. It's not just this little thing that's going to make your life a little bit better. It's something that changes your life forever for the better. But even when it doesn't seem like it's for the better, we can be assured by his word that the counsel of his word, the counsel of his lips, of his mouth, it stands forever. And so say it with me. This is our phrase for the day. No matter the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Psalm 33 that sets our eyes on the right prize. It's not on our own strength. It's not that we can uh, be defended by our great military strength and ability or our own technology or whatever the case might be that we're trusting in, Lord. You can found all of those things if you want to in an instant. But your truth, your plan, your wisdom is never changed. It's never thwarted by anything we do here. And so, Lord, we give these things to you. Lord, even our very nation that is struggling, we give to you, Lord. May your people rise up and defend truth and defend your word and defend life knowing that these are the foundation of your word. Lord, uh, I would pray also that our hope would be rested firmly in Jesus Christ and not in whatever else we're going to figure out to try to fill the void with. None of that stuff satisfies. None of that stuff is where our hope can be set. And so, Lord, we pray that you would change our view of what is truth and, Lord, that your love would continually help our unbelief because there's a lot of it still there. Lord, that your mercy would bolster our faith and that your grace would increase our hope, Lord, in who you are and what you have done, not in what we can do. Lord, help us to see too the truth of the fact that whatever the news that we see, your purpose stands forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.